1694. The famous slave trader George Velo and a handful of recruits slog through the swamps of the Brazilian rainforest. The men are jittery, and they should be. The recruits who have returned from the jungle told horrible tales of the leader of the slaves, Zumbi. They spoke of his ability to return from the dead and how he had mixed African magic with Christianity to create spells to stop bullets. Every man is exhausted and ragged, having trudged around in circles for weeks looking for Zumbi's mystical city of Palmares. The column of men suddenly comes to a halt, probably waiting for those carrying the canners to catch up. Suddenly, an ear-piercing shriek breaks the silence. Hundreds of slaves bleed from the thick jungle canopy. Machetes raised and covered head to toe in paint, they are a horrifying sight, looking more like demons than men. Velo yells at the recruits to form up a battle line, but most have already dropped their weapons and ran. Those that haven't are cut to pieces. At the front of his men stand Zumbi and his wife Dandora. The couple cheer on their troops as the slave traders are chased back to the coast. They should have known better. This was not their land. This was Zumbi's domain. This is a fascinating story of Zumbi and his kingdom of Palmares. In 1575, the Portuguese colony of Luanda was established in modern-day Angola. For those unaware of where that is, it's the furthest point west on the continent of Africa. Not once to sit around idly, within 25 years of their arrival, the Portuguese had already made a few alliances with local rulers and began meddling in the affairs of numerous African kingdoms. By 1610, small groups of slaves had begun being exported out of Angola, usually spoils of war the Portuguese had obtained in battles with local rulers. As the trickle of slaves began to grow larger and larger, a member of the Portuguese aristocracy of Luando had this to justify the growing numbers of slaves being sold. Quote, we have been here ourselves for 40 years and there have been many learned men here and in the province of Brazil who have never considered the trade illicit. He further stated, and I'm paraphrasing here, that there were only a small number of slaves being sold and that they were being converted to Christianity first. In other words, it's fine, slavery is fine and God's cool with it. By 1616, a new port was built to accommodate the mass of slaves coming out of Africa and by 1655, the Portuguese had virtually wiped out all African resistance to their rule. The last real fight against Portuguese domination was the Battle of Mabuila, between the dying Congolese Kingdom and the Portuguese Empire. The Dutch initially agreed to support the African Kingdom, but soon revoked their promise of aid, leaving the Africans to fight the Portuguese alone. As usual, the Portuguese forces had recruited African divisions to fight other Africans alongside them. One of these were known as the Imbangala, and are very interesting, but also very brutal. If there's any kids listening to this episode, maybe skip ahead about a minute. The Imbangala tribe migrated possibly from Central Africa, but historians aren't sure. They've been compared to the ancient Spartans, but on steroids, a fully militarised society. Women were banned from giving birth, and any children that were born were killed. To keep up their numbers, they relied on raiding and capturing young children. The children had to wear an iron collar until they had killed and eaten part of a man. As part of initiation, children would lead a brutal torturing session, including pounding up a newborn baby in a grain mortar. The Portuguese would feign disgust in these practices, but came to rely on these brutal savages to inflict guerrilla-style terror attacks when they needed them. Zumbi, it is rumoured, was descended from the Imbangala, but like many facts about him, there was almost no definitive proof. 
Returning now to the Battle of Mubuila, predictably the Portuguese easily crushed the brave but doomed Congolese kingdom and captured and beheaded their king, Antonio I. Alongside the king, many other high-profile captives are taken, including most of the Congolese aristocracy. Among those is Ganga Zumba. Remember this guy, he's important. Before we arrive on the shores of Brazil, I'm going to quickly go through the journey an African person may have had to endure before arriving for a life of manual labour and abuse in Brazil. Fair warning, some of the accounts that had are quite graphic. In the 17th century, the sugar industry was a real cash crop, and it's hard to believe now considering the price of sugar. But during this time, 57 grams of gold would only buy you around 15 kilograms of sugar. Brazil's coastal tropical climate was well suited for growing this cash crop. My first question was initially, why were African slaves needed to cultivate sugar in Brazil? According to the Europeans, African slaves lived approximately four years longer and were more resistant to European diseases. They were also seen to be stronger and of a more servile nature than Native American slaves. In other words, they were more suited for the labour needed to grow sugar. African slaves were caught or attained, stripped of their identity, given a European-sounding name, a baptism, and a last name based on a vague region they'd been captured in. They were branded one to three times to indicate possessions and baptismal status, and then packed onto an overfilled boat to maximise profit. The journey across the ocean would take 35 days at very best, and five months at very worst. The mortality rates were around 20%, but could be as high as 60%. But these were irrelevant to the owners, as the price of slaves, or pieces as they were called, were so, so cheap. The space assigned to each slave aboard one of these floating nightmares was 140 centimetres squared for a man and 83 centimetres squared for a woman, an insanely small amount of space for a living being. The slaves were given virtually no fresh air and diseases of all kind ran rampant on the ship. The stench was unbearable and of course it was very, very hot. The historian Oliviera Martins had this to say about the journey, quote, When a ship tossed in a storm, the mass of black bodies piled in the hold moved like an anthill of men to drink of the little of the dreadful air that flowed over the iron-graded hatch. In the hold of the ships that was rocked by the sea, there was ferocious struggles, shouts, and howls of cholera and despair. Those whom fate favoured in this undulating live black flesh groped at the light and looked towards this narrow nook of the sky. In the darkness of the hold, the sad souls, promiscuously arranged in a pile, either fell inanimate in a lethal stupor, or hopeful and full of fury, chewed themselves. They strangled themselves, crushed themselves, and sometimes gutted themselves. Others broke limbs in the shock of these dark battles, and the human mass, whose savage howls rose from the open hatch, turned back into their cavern, drowned in tears and slop. There was a later law instituted by the Portuguese crown to set the number of slaves per vessel, but this was virtually ignored in practice. Speaking about statistics, it seems easy to reduce the personal factor, but these were real people with family, dreams, and a life back home that had been taken from them. For those that survived the journey, they would arrive on the tropical shores of Pernambuco, north of modern Salvador. They were transferred to a warehouse to recover, fatten up, and have their gums painted, etc., and then were sold at markets. Each region of Africa was known for having different traits of its slaves. Angolans would be known for being docile, honourable, loyal, and appropriate for domestic use. Those from the Congo were worth a little more for being active and more adaptable to field work. 
while Gambians and Mozambicans were known to be lazy, less intelligent, and lethargic. Slaves were incredibly cheap. It was economically more feasible to feed them the bare minimum to keep them alive and just replace them after they died, rather than care for them efficiently. Slaves were punished mercilessly for any perceived defence. Lashings were common, not just on the back, but also to the head, face, legs, and soles of feet. Lime, salt, and pepper were rubbed into the wounds to maximise pain and minimise the chance of infection if a slave was to return to work eventually. If the slave was not destined to return to work, urine would also be rubbed into the wound to encourage an infection. These punishments were administrated while the person was left in stocks and could be left there for days, weeks, or more. The next day, new lashes would break open the wounds again and again. But there were other brutal inventives also. Slaves were chained to boiling cauldrons. Slaves were hung lopsided to break the spine under their own weight. Their ears were sliced off, their genitals cut out, and their Achilles tendons sliced. Portuguese wives are noted to be even crueler, mutilating women slaves who their husbands showed any interest in, cutting off their breasts, gouging out their eyes, and kicking out their teeth. I've included the above not just for shock and awe, but to paint a picture of a slave's life in Brazil and help you understand why so many of them would want to escape. Eager to escape this hell on earth, slaves ran away, in the only direction they had available to them, into the jungle. The runaway slaves headed deep into the interior, and away from the Portuguese-controlled coast. They established what were known as Macambos, an African word for hideout, effectively a small village whose inhabitants lived off the land with coconut as their staple foodstuff. The community would pull resources together and the difficult terrain made it hard for the Portuguese to find and even harder to assault. But on the occasion assaults did occur, the palm leaves huts they built were easy to abandon and easier to return to later once the Portuguese had left. When enough of these macambos gathered in one area they were organised into a kilimbo, or African word for war camp. In this case, this kilimbo was named palmares due to the excess of palm trees within the area. As Palmares grew and grew, it began to resemble a small colonial town, with a chapel, four blacksmiths, and even a council house. As with most native religions introduced to Christianity, the religion was Catholicism mixed with some tribal elements of the old religion. Slavery was still in practice, but it could be revoked in more circumstances than it would on the coast. The form of government is speculative only, but possibly a mix of a democratic and parliamentarian, with one man holding total power but with input from his council. At the heart of Palmares lay Macacao, the capital, a fortress built into a mountain with triple-lined defensive walls and booby-trapped spike pits intended as the last line of defence to fall back to in the event of catastrophic raids. Many Kilimbos came and went, but Palmares would keep expanding, mainly because it was close to Pernambuco, the largest sugar plantation in Brazil, which meant a steady trail of ex-slaves arriving regularly. The leader of Palmares was a shadowy figure named Ganga Zumba. This was likely not his real name. In African dialect, Ganga Zumba translates to either Great Lord or the priest responsible for the spiritual defense of the community. Quite a title. Ganga Zumba may have been just an escaped slave, he may have been born there, but the most widely accepted theory is that he was a member of the aristocracy of Angola, who was enslaved after the Battle of Mabwila that we mentioned earlier. Somehow, he became the de facto king of Palmares. After the arrival of Ganga Zumba, there was a noticeable change in the organisation of the city, and it would be needed. 
As in only a few years, the population of the city had risen from 11,000 to 20,000 runaway slaves and misfits. But Ganga Zumba isn't who this story is about. Today's story is about Zumbi. Zumbi was born in 1655. There are two main sources about where he came from. The first is that he was a nephew of Ganga Zumba. He grew up in Palmares and was the leader of one of the Makambas that made up Palmares. This story fits as Ganga Zumba would probably promote relatives to positions of power. The second story is that he was an orphan who was raised in Pernambuco by a kindly priest and given the name Francisco. He was not a slave, but was empathetic and noticed the injustice suffered by his people. He was intelligent and spoke Latin and obviously Portuguese, and left to join the Palmares after being disgusted by seeing how the Portuguese treated slaves. There are no reliable accounts of his appearance or even his name. Like Ganga Zumba, Zumbi could mean supreme being, ancestral spirit, or evil spirit, but according to Portuguese accounts, they referred to him as the Lord of War, definitely the most impressive of the four. He had a wife, and likely multiple, but the most famous was Dandara, who was famous for fighting alongside him in the constant attacks. Women fighting shoulder to shoulder with men was common in the Kilambos, and probably dated back to the African roots where women played an important role in battles. While the population growth made Palmares stronger, it also put the city firmly on the radar of the Portuguese, and raids became more and more common. The raids were usually not carried out by the army, but by a hastily assembled colonial force made up of native Brazilians, African slaves, and a few white colonists. The raids were a nuisance to Palmares, but not much more. A few slaves who were too slow fleeing in the jungle would likely be caught and dragged back, and a few palm shelters may be burned down, but these were outlying settlements, and the actual location of Palmares itself remained hidden. There would usually be a small skirmish designed to discourage the coastal force, and after a few days, the militia, unaccustomed to the fatigue of the jungle, would usually become demoralised and leave. The inhabitants of Palmares would then return to their Macambo, rebuild the simple thatched roof in a day, and continue living. In an attempt to save face, the raiding party would report to the governor that the raid was complete and that the slave city had been subdued. Problem solved. Not to say that the people of Palmares were completely innocent. Ganga Zumba's men would also conduct their own raids at outlying sugar mills, stealing slaves, women and munitions. By the law of Palmares, if a slave was captured, he still remained a slave and had to attain his own slave and then set him free. After he had done this, he too became free. Kind of like a pyramid scheme of reverse slavery, I guess. This is Alex Hasty, the host of Ohio vs. the World, an American history podcast. On Ohio vs. the World, we'll travel back in time with the authors, historians, and even witnesses to visit the most exciting, consequential, and too often overlooked topics that have shaped America's history. There seems to be an Ohio connection to so many important moments. When you said uh, Ohio versus the world, we did some damage. So join us and we'll take a deep dive to enlighten, educate, and entertain you as Ohio vs. the world makes history fun again. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, 
the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. As the city grew, Portuguese raids would continue to increase in ferocity with bigger forces and better trained troops, but with more or less the same result as before. But after one fateful raid, the troops found something that shocked them. In the ruins of one of the palm huts they burnt down, they discovered state-of-the-art Portuguese muskets and powder. For the Portuguese, military tech was their only trump card. If the slaves could match them in firepower, there was a real possibility of Brazil turning into an African colony rather than a Portuguese one. This discovery provoked an immediate shift in the attitude of Palmares. From now on, raids focused on extermination rather than recapture. Back at the coast, the governor amps things up immediately and recruits a commander of some serious prestige. Fernão Carillo was a veteran military man who had experience in tracking and destroying Kalimbos. But even with an experienced commander, there was a serious shortage in skilled soldiers. Carillo requests 400 soldiers, but the most the colony can possibly find is 185. A group was recruited called the Enrique Regiment, a squadron composed entirely of well-trained and disciplined black slaves, led by a man named Enrique. All members of the regiment were originally promised freedom once they assisted the Portuguese in another war, but once their skills were no longer needed, the governor was fearful of freeing them due to their military training, but also could not afford to keep paying them. So instead, the group roamed around the colonies as a kind of mercenary force. Despite the shortage of numbers, these men were used to the jungle hardships like the irregulars were not. They were hardy and able to live off the land. Their raid into Palmares was the most successful to date. Many high-profile prisoners were caught and captured, including some of Ganga Zumba's family members. Ganga Zumba himself was wounded and only managed to limp away, shot in the ankle. The success of the raid clearly spooked Ganga Zumba, and not long after, a peace officer was sent to him by the colony, finally hoping to end the resistance. Ganga Zumba and his family were to be provisioned with a plot of land that they owned. Any person born within Palmares was to be a free man, but slaves who had ran off to join them were to be returned to their owners and back into slavery. Slaves in the future who ran off to join them would also need to be returned. Considering the trouble Ganga Zumba had caused the Portuguese, this offer was generous. The fight had gone out of Ganga Zumba by this point. He was getting older and had had enough of living on the run. It seems that a council was held where the majority of his men agreed to take the offer. But there was a small vocal group of war chiefs who disagreed stating that the Portuguese could not be trusted to live up to their own treaty. Leading this argument is Zumbi, and when he is outvoted, he and around one-third of the chiefs vow to stay behind and continue the fight. After this, Zumbi is elected the new king of Palmares. Zumbi's decision to stay behind and keep up the fight say a lot about his character, as no matter which of his origin stories is correct, under this treaty he would have been a freeman. With the change of leadership, Palmares was to become much more militarised, and the society was now being built to sustain a long, drawn-out war with the colony. Those who remained knew they were in it until the end. Raids would continue, but no longer burdened by pacifist settlers, the Portuguese had an incredibly hard time making any headway into Zumbi's new defences and traps. It's during this time we get our first actual report on Zumbi from a Portuguese soldier. Quote, General at Arms, who was called Zambi, which means Lord of War, 
a Negro of singular valor, great spirit, and rare constancy, he is the marvel of the rest because his industriousness, judgment, and strength are an embarrassment to our people and an example to his. In addition to the new defenses, Zumbi also begins covert operations, sending some spies to live on Ganga Zumba's reservation. The spies report that people are unhappy with life on the reservation and say that the people are living only slightly better than they were as slaves. And with these reports, slaves begin to trickle back into the city of Palmares. As mood on the reservation turns against Ganga Zumba, discontent grows, ending up in Ganga Zumba himself being poisoned. Some sources stating Zumbi did the poisoning himself, insisting that his uncle had betrayed his people and he needed to die. As the Portuguese tried desperately to salvage the situation on the reservation, Zumbi brings the fight to them. Zumbi begins raiding outlying mills and towns and even storming prisons in main towns, always on the lookout for more recruits for his army. Whatever militia the towns could put together, Zumbi made short work of. He relied heavily on hit-and-run tactics, drawing the colonial forces into a narrow valley or choke point where he'd planned an ambush. These attacks begin to seriously disrupt Portugal's sugar production, and reports of one defiant slave continuing outsmarting Portuguese officials start to escalate all the way to the top. Incredibly, the king of Portugal himself writes Zumbi a letter personally, promising him good terms and amnesty if he surrenders. To reiterate, this is the king of one of the most powerful empires in the world writing to a slave. This shows the degree of chaos Zumbi had stirred up. Zumbi doesn't outright refuse to surrender, but instead plays for time, requesting unrealistic terms and then even more unrealistic counterterms. While the letters go back and forth to Portugal, he spends the time fortifying and preparing for the fight that he knows is coming. The Portuguese ramp up the attacks on Macambos. Many outlying villages are burned and gradually Palmarians recede into the jungle, closing in and around the last bastion of defence, the Palmaran capital of Macacau. Almost every report after these raids claimed that they had killed Zumbi, giving rise to the superstition of his ability to rise from the dead. With Zumbi's counter-raids growing ever more daring, the Portuguese colony turns to the Palistas, or Banditarios. These men are slave traders by profession, but would really do any dirty work for the right price. Ruthless, merciless, and coldly efficient, they worked only for personal gain and were unbothered by a loyalty to any king or religion. They had no issues massacring entire villages full of women, children, or the elderly. These brutal killers lived in the interior, and spoke a Creole language combining a mix of Portuguese and a few native languages. They were usually mixed blood, part Portuguese and part Native American or African. George Vello, the man mentioned in the introduction of this episode, was the most famous of them all. Technically retired, Vello was a polista who had a large space of land somewhere north of Pernambuco. The governor of the city knew of his reputation and called upon his services, and agreed to grant him all the land he conquered if he could kill Zumbi. But more than this, the agreement was that anyone Velo came into contact with was to be killed. There was no quarter to be given. Slaves still in Palmares were never going to be docile enough for servitude again. They had no purpose and needed to be wiped out. Chillingly, the governor makes special note that Velo is to be exempt from any crimes he commits in the process. We have an artist's impression of what Velo looked like on our website. In 1693, Velo sets out from the coast with his small army, a mix of polistas and a regular militia. 
but Zumbi is only too aware of his plans and had set up various ambush sites, aware that they would likely be heading directly to Macacau. When Velo and his Paulistas are ambushed by Zumbi and his men, they manage to hold their own in battle. But it's a different story for the irregular troops, who begin to trickle back to the coast rather than put up with Zumbi's constant attacks. Eventually, all that's left of the attack forces are Paulistas themselves. Being totally outnumbered, they end up retreating back to Pernambuco, again claiming a victory and that Zumbi was very likely dead at this point. But as Zumbi's raids continue, it was quickly obvious that this was not the case. At the start of 1694, another force is commissioned. Again, it is to be led by the palista George Velo, but with Bernardo Vieira de Mello as second in command. De Mello was a wealthy nobleman who paid for his own munitions and supplies, and unlike Velo, who was ruthless and swift, Mello was level-headed and steady. The two complemented each other's skills well. With these two at the helm, the army snakes its way up the coast, pulling in everyone it can for the expedition. Glory hunters and treasure seekers join en masse. Taking no chances, a decree is given for towns to empty their prisoners and arm the men who are forced to take part in the expedition. The clergy of Brazil also lends his voice, calling a crusade upon the, quote, black infidels. This inspires many pious Christians wishing to earn some points in the afterlife. Velo himself uses all his connections, and 700 toughened veteran polistas crawl out of the interior to answer the call. The group is also supplied with one cannon, nine cannonballs, and three packs of grape shot, clearly anticipating a siege. By the time they begin heading into the interior, the total number of the force is over 8,000 people, by far the largest army ever assembled for this mission. The journey is fairly uniform. Aware of the immense army coming from him, Zumbi had pulled all his defences to the nucleus of his empire. Encountering very little resistance after a few days' march, the Portuguese finally see it. Brushing the last layer of palm leaves from their path, Zumbi's capital of Macacau comes into view. Rising from the jungle canopy, an angry, sharp mountain peak jutted out of the earth, with a series of sentry towers spread around it. In between the viewing points of the tower lay a hodgepodge of triple layers of palisade walls, littered with hidden spike pits ingeniously camouflaged into the jungle foliage. These were likely the first non-residents to see Macacau, and to them it must have looked like Mount Doom. The brutal defence was supposedly created by a mysterious figure known as the Moor, an ex-slave of Arabic lineage who apparently had some experience in siege works. From where they were standing, the attackers could hear that the fortress was buzzing with sounds of life, but the jungle around it was dead quiet. Every man, woman or child capable of holding a weapon had been drawn inside. Everyone knew this was to be their last stand. After setting up camp, Velo and Demello send out a few probing attacks, which are met with intense arrow and gunfire. But one particular section of the wall seems vulnerable, and when the order was given to advance on the section, the defenders broke and ran inside. But this was a rouge. The overconfident Portuguese attackers hastily followed the retreating men into a choke point, where they were attacked from all sides before barely managing to retreat back to their camp. Seeing their overconfidence almost get the better of them, DeMello insists that there would be no more gambles like this, and instead orders the creation of a counter-wall to encircle the fortress, like something out of Julius Caesar's wars. Zumbi sends out nightly skirmishes to disrupt the wall building, but eventually the wall is built. The cannon that the Portuguese had lugged through the jungle is mounted on the new wall, 
but some dunce takes control of it and in a few hours manages to fire all nine cannonballs and both grape shots without hitting anything. I don't know how it's possible to miss a wall, but I've never fired a cannon, I guess. Seeing their secret weapon fail, the morale of the troops begins to fall. Many of the 8,000 troops did not bring enough food for a sustained campaign and were not prepared for such intense warfare. With supplies dwindling, some attackers begin to sneak away back to the coast. Noticing this, Zumbi personally leads their counterattack, hoping to break the attackers' morale, but it's a bad miscalculation. With the irregulars deserting, Zumbi and his men encounter the battle-hardened Polistas who give them no ground and kill some of Zumbi's best men. Hearing of the critical situation, the governor of Pernambuco arrives personally with reinforcements, an additional six cannons with fresh seasoned troops and food and water. It's at this point of the story I often need to remind myself this is a group of untrained slaves with stolen guns holding out against one of the most powerful empires on earth. The new cannons are quickly mounted on the walls, but were still ineffective for whatever reason. But what did prove effective was another wall. The new wall was built on the side of the mountain fort, on a portion where the fort and the landscape outside the fort leveled out a bit. There was less defences on this side of the fort, as it was seemingly inaccessible to attackers, or so Zumbi thought. If the wall was built, it would provide a vantage point for the attackers who would be at a higher altitude. So, over the course of one night, the Portuguese built the wall in secret, and as the sun rose on the besieged city, a tall wobbly tower now loomed directly overhead, exposing the majority of the city to ceaseless fire from the Portuguese. One of the builders of the tower reported in the morning he heard Zumbi berating the sentrymen in charge of the section, quote, You let the whites build this wall? Tomorrow we'll be invaded and killed. Our women and children will be captured. As morning comes and the inhabitants wake to see the new tower, morale plummets inside Macacau. Everyone now recognised their situation was untenable. Knowing the end was near, the population of Palmares attempted to slip away after dark, but unlike the Macambos, Macacau was not designed for this. There were very little ways in or out, and chaos erupts when the Portuguese discover this. Zumbi with his family are ambushed on the way out, and according to the sources, he holds the line while his son and wife flee fighting hand-to-hand with the Palistas before being knocked down by two small cannonballs and limping off into the jungle. Zumbi's capital is put to the torch. Portuguese sources record that the city was set up brilliantly. 240 houses separated by makeshift fire barriers to ensure blazes would not spread. 40 forges turning out iron arrows, swords, nails and anything needed for the war effort, as well as a few chapels and even a government house. Despite the orders to kill on sight, the thought of so many potential slaves is tantalising for George Velo, who orders all those not injured to be rounded up and shackled. A fight almost breaks out with him and another man, where, in his usual depravity, insists that if he does not personally get ownership of every slave found, he will just kill them all. The level-headedness of Vieira de Mello calms the situation, possibly preventing a complete massacre of the population. Once again, reports of Zumbi being killed are circulated. While it's true that Zumbi still lived, he was certainly worse for wear. Shot twice and peppered by grapeshot, he had limped north with the remainder of some of his entourage. In true Zumbi fashion, he was apparently wishing to continue the resistance against the Portuguese and was lying low in another Kilimbo. But the Palistas were hot on his trail. A slave captured in this new Kilimbo were threatened with torture unless he led them to Zumbi. 
Zumbi had just enough time to send his family away before diving into a hidden cave and hiding there. Resurfacing from another point in the cave, the Palistas managed to follow him, closing in on his trail. Zumbi, now badly injured with a few of his men, turn and fight the Palistas to death. None were left to survive. Zumbi's body was identified by a group of captured slaves who knew him. By the time it got to them, his body had 15 bullets in it, several stab wounds, one eye cut out, one hand cut off, and his genitals had been placed in his mouth. His head was later severed and placed on a spike in the public square of Punamboku, apparently to show any superstitious slaves who believed the myth of his mortality. It was over. There were no more false reports. Zumbi, the lord of war, had fought his last battle. Not long after his death, the town of Pernambuco became a backwater. Golden diamonds were discovered in another part of Brazil, and the price of sugar was never to rise as high as it did in the past. Because of this, the geopolitical hub of Brazil went southward to the state of Minas Gerais, still called this today, with the English translation of it being General Mines. For the people that managed to escape from Palmares, they would head to another Quilimbo, or establish a new one themselves, and start again. While Palmares was obviously the most famous, the struggle by Zumbi would be replicated on smaller scales throughout Brazil. Racial inequality would run rampant for the next few centuries, with black farmers being pushed from place to place at the will of white settlers who wanted their land. Palistas, such as George Velo, would be held in high esteem as pioneers and explorers of the interior, their cruelty and mercilessness deliberately skimmed over. Only within the last 50 years or so have people begun to challenge this. Only very recently has there been a resurgence of interest in Zumbi, and more so an interest in finding out about the location of the famous Palmares, even today existing in a vague idea only. In 1988, Brazil would recognise Palmares and, where possible, start the process of granting claims on the land of the descendants of the families who were enslaved there. In 1997, the Brazilian parliament declared Zumbi a national hero, and November the 20th, originally Black Awareness Day, is unofficially known as Zumbi Day and is a public holiday in many states of Brazil. To me, Zumbi's story is incredibly inspiring, and it's tragic we don't know more about him. Who was this man? Was he really descended from Angolan royalty? Why did he reject his uncle's promise of an easy life? What was his real name? Perhaps it's what we don't know that gives his actions so much conviction. A single black man destined to be worked to death within five years would reduce the king of one of the most powerful empires in the world to begging for clemency. With his boundless courage and sheer determination, Zumbi dos Palmares stands today as a symbol of triumph against social injustice. A huge thank you to the show's Patreon supporters, Claudia, Tom, Malcolm, and Roll. A lot of people don't realize this, but this is a one-man show, so there's a big chunk of time that goes into research, writing, editing, and all that. I love sharing these stories, and it means a lot knowing you guys are enjoying them. Your contributions help me keep the lights on, sound libraries, web hosting, books, and all that. If you're not a patron already, we've got some really cool rewards, like having the option to read out some of the quotes we use in our episodes. If you want to go have a look, tap the link in our bio. 
I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Tom Kearns, and I host the Anglo-Saxon England podcast, where I cover the history and culture of England from the departure of the Romans in the 5th century to the Norman Conquest in 1066. So far, we've surveyed the collapse of Roman rule in Britain, the migration of the Anglo-Saxons, and the history of Northumbria from its beginnings in the mists of legend to its destruction at the hands of Viking raiders in the 9th century. I hope you'll come and give it a go.